0: Kia hi, I'm Andrew Whiteside. In 1993, a gay man called Peter Ellis was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in jail on charges he had sexually abused seven children at a childcare centre in Christchurch, New Zealand. Despite concerns about how the investigation was handled, unreliable testimony, and a retraction from one of the key witnesses, several appeals against his conviction were unsuccessful. In October 2022, however, the New Zealand Supreme Court found that evidence against him and misleading expert testimony in the original trial had resulted in a miscarriage of justice and therefore quashed all of the convictions. Peter Ellis himself was unable to savour that decision as he died of bladder cancer in 2019. Joining me now to discuss the case and the appeal process is Peter Ellis's long-term lawyer and supporter, Rob Harrison. Rob Harrison, really nice to talk to you this morning, and and thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Uh, Now, of course, the big news. Peter Ellis um, had his convictions quashed by the Supreme Court. It's a momentous decision, but I guess uh, for people like yourself, his family, and his supporters, it's a bittersweet decision.
1: Oh, look, very much so. The timing uh, of finally getting uh, it live in the Supreme Court Uh, and then for Peter to die, uh, and then his mum, who was uh, such a strong supporter of him, but also uh, tainted by uh, the allegations uh, for her to die two to three months uh, before this decision came out, uh, is just difficult. But I think for the wider public, uh, and for uh, his whānau, and for all those people who were Charged or affected by what happened, um, there's some uh, finality there, which is um, extremely
0: pleasing. What does the ruling actually mean? Because the the Supreme Court is not saying that he was innocent.
1: No, there's two aspects to it. The first uh, was the evidence relied on uh, in the court, which was the uh, use coming under Section 23G. And they said that that was wrong in law, Uh, the manner in which it was given, uh, and uh, highly prejudicial. The second one was that the issues of contamination of the children's evidence wasn't fully understood and not fully put before the uh, jury. So on those two grounds, each separately, there would have been a miscarriage.
0: If Peter had still been alive, would that have meant that this issue would have gone back to trial?
1: I don't think so. Uh, I don't think it would have, uh, but that would have been a decision for the crown.
0: But he could have potentially also got compensation if it if it didn't go back to trial.
1: Uh, yes. Well, I I never considered the compensation aspect to it. Um, I note that uh, he made some comment to Mike Hosking in the weeks before he died that it, that it would be nice for his family or whatever, but. Mm. All the dealings I had with him and with his family, they were just focused on this one point,
0: which I guess is the most important point for them.
1: Yes, yes, he's yeah, He had always maintained, look, I never did this.
0: What what seems extraordinary is that there were two court of appeal uh, cases in ninety four and ninety nine, a ministerial uh, inquiry in two thousand, all of which upheld. The charges most of the sorry most of them and and definitely the sentence it seems extraordinary now that the supreme court has overturned that so were the were those appeal court processes flawed what, what's your thoughts on that
1: well i think in respect of the first uh, appeal in 94 which i um i started with nigel hampton qc uh and when uh, he became ill and graham pankhurst continued on so i was involved in that first appeal Uh, We didn't have, even at that stage, anywhere near the information that we have now or indeed what was there in the 99 appeal. So in the 94 appeal, I think we couldn't show... The points that we could show now, in the 99 appeal, the court restricted itself very narrowly and wouldn't engage fully, I think, as is the court's right, because it was a referral back from the Governor-General under the prerogative. So it came back to them, they really kept, kept it narrow. This appeal has been the first time that a court, and I include the Commission of Inquiry in there, a court actually looked at all the issues uh, without limiting itself. So the problems with contamination, the issues of how the children are interviewed, uh, the use of 23G, all of those factors uh, became extremely important and were appropriately aired without restriction, if
0: I can put it that way. One of the things that seems to almost beggar um, belief about this case was that many of the allegations about Peter just seemed outlandish. So I'll, I'll just list some of them here. So the, the, the children were sodomized. They were forced to eat feces. There were secret tunnels, trapdoors, kids being buried in coffins, a child having a belly button removed, uh, a child being sacrificed but no evidence of anyone going missing. They, they seem extraordinary. And, and some of those were, were not put into the trial.
1: That's right.
0: Looking back now, what are your thoughts on that? And, and why were they not part of the trial?
1: All of that material that the children, uh, all the statements the children made, uh, we attempted to have placed in front of the court. Justice Williamson felt that if it didn't relate directly to the charges before the court, then it shouldn't be played. So the, the, only, the only aspects of the tapes not played by the Crown that we could ask to have played was where it had relevance To the charges. So, for example, uh, a child saying someone was killed, uh, I would argue that that that's uh, crucial to their credibility, Mm. but not so. It doesn't relate specifically to the charge. So, that was the ruling of Honor Justice Williamson, and that's why a lot of the tapes were played. And the Supreme Court uh, said that, well, I was able to get uh, a number of the tapes played, or aspects of some of the tapes played, and it was a risky, I think, well, they don't say that, but my inference. From reading it, is that there were certain risks uh, of playing all the tapes.
0: Was there ever any physical evidence provided, uh, such as bruising or forms of tissue damage uh, on the children?
1: No. There, there were, well, there was medical evidence put forward, which is discussed in the Supreme Court now, uh, and that is uh, uh, basically saying, well, look, the evidence they put forward, we would not put forward in, uh, today because we know a lot better for example there was a fold in the skin in the anus of one child uh, and so that was being told to be uh, consistent with sexual abuse
0: but but nowadays that would be looked at as you couldn't say it's consistent with anything because it could be naturally occurring absolutely when you were in court and this is all going down what what are you thinking? I mean, you, yes, you've got a you've got a case to present and a, and a man to defend, but personally, what are you thinking when you're seeing this? Are you, are you thinking that my God, a jury will never accept this?
1: My view of this case really um, solidified when we did the eleven week deposition hearing, and at the start of that hearing, this um, I think he's dead now, so I think it's safe for me to say, crusty old journalist from the start came up to me and said. Why are you defending this paedophile? You know you should be ashamed of yourself. Words to that effect. At the end of the depositions, he came up and he said, "You know what? I, I think uh, I think your boy's been set up because he watched, looked through all the evidence." So, I was thinking uh, that the jury also would look at this and come to that view.
0: So, so do you think that he was set up? That he was the fall guy for something?
1: Well, no, Um, I think it's a bit more complex and nuanced than that. I think that uh, at the time that this broke in Christchurch, you had had a whole raft of other cases around the world on uh, satanic ritual abuse occurring in preschools. Uh, And you'd had uh, a number of people who had given conferences in Christchurch just before the first... Allegation a few months before the first allegation, uh, and so I think that sparked the concern. Uh, so I don't know if it is a conspiracy. I wouldn't say it was a conspiracy, but I think it was a. Um, I don't think people got together and said, oh, well, let's let's sort out Peter Ellis." But I think that once this that issue arose, all the other prejudices that. Uh, existed at the time, uh, really played into uh, convicting him. You, you've got to look at the agencies as well. Uh, Department of Social Welfare, the police, they were all waiting for this event to arrive. It's like um, buying, all these, uh, buying all this military hardware and then not having a war to go to, and then all of a sudden there's a possibility of
0: one. I wanted to ask your thoughts on the head of the investigation Colin Ede, and there, you know, he acknowledged in an interview that he'd had sex with two of the mothers involved in the case uh, and and propositioned another. I mean, again, that seems extraordinary.
1: Yeah, we were not aware of that until after the trial. And also, I think what's perhaps a bit more chilling is the information on the pressure he brought to bear on the family of the oldest child, the one that crown suit was the most reliable
0: and were subsequently retracted
1: yes yes uh but in terms of the pressure the family felt from that that is really concerning the other factor i think was that he was operating very much alone i think for the first uh six or seven months of that investigation you know i never saw another detective except when they went out and started arresting the um woman and uh the woman co-workers. So, um, and I think that played a role as well. I've never sat down um, with him and had a discussion. Uh, although I saw a great deal of him leading up to depositions, because he interviewed Peter after every um, tape had been played.
0: The, but there's been no repercussion for the for his involvement, sexual involvement with with people who were connected to the trial. Not
1: that I'm aware of.
0: Mm. It, it's dangerous, isn't
1: it? it Extremely dangerous and I think uh, that together with what he, the pressure he put on that family suggests that he had a vested interest in this proceeding uh, and he was blind to any other possibility, uh, which is dangerous for any investigating authority, I would have thought.
0: Mm, and, And frightening for the public. Yes. Yeah.
1: Especially if you're not aware of it when you start looking at the resulting evidence.
0: Why did you take the case on all those years ago?
1: Well, initially I was a barrister, I was instructed to appear with Peter on his first, um, the first charges, and then I uh, worked through him, uh, worked with him through the interviewing process as the case grew and grew and grew and grew. Uh, so that was um, my my involvement um, in the case with him. Uh,
0: you obviously over these years, you will have gotten to know him pretty well, Um How would you describe him? What what kind of man was he?
1: The first thing you don't, well, you wouldn't have been aware of when you first met Peter was how uh, mentally and emotionally strong he was. And I think he surprised himself with that. Subsequently, as he went as his life uh, continued as a convicted man and then released back out to the community, Um, he didn't let it destroy him. And I think work with his mother helped. When you first met him he was flamboyant. Uh he was um irreverent in his humour. He was um outrageous. So for example, going going to visit uh, uh Detective Eed um and view these interviews and then they'd be interviewed, uh Peter and I would sit while uh Detective Eed asked questions. He'd be sitting there with these most vibrant coloured fingernails. Um <laughs> that <you laughs> Uh, and sitting, um, the juxtaposition of a uh, sh- uh, you know short, back and sides, um, you know, beefed up, solid uh, detective and um, the flamboyant and uh, uh, openly gay uh, man was um, it was
0: striking. At, at the time of his death, do you where do you think he would got in terms of processing this whole thing? did he Did he think he would eventually be exonerated, but where had he got to in his in his own mind around all of what had happened to him?
1: that's a that's a good um, that's a large question if I can put it that mm. way. Mm-hmm. What never changed from uh, the time that I started acting for him until the end was that he was adamant that uh, when I went into trial, that uh, the children uh weren't to be uh given a, you know a rough cross examination that that he didn't hold them responsible for what they were saying. Uh he um was uh and that and that he maintained that view all the way all the way through. He didn't feel that the children were responsible for his situation. Uh so he was always accepting of that uh and, and firm about that. Uh, he, uh, was also equally firm that he had never done this and he maintained that and the personal cost. So when we got, uh, leave to continue to, oh sorry, to, uh, uh have the substantive matter heard when he was still alive, um, he was delighted. He was, um, he was thinking this is finally we're going to be able to put this to bed. Uh, and again, not in a not in a vindictive manner uh, you know I mean there were times of course when he was bitter about people and things, but uh not in a vindictive manner, he really just wanted to be able to stand and say this yeah you know, what you've accused me of is not me uh, and he maintained that all the way uh, through to the end
0: so i'm I'm interested uh i guess on the impact on you because you know you knew this man for 30 years almost 30 years and it's been a part of your life for three decades um how has it affected you uh, and possibly even changed you maybe
1: right um well the verdict uh uh back in the back uh, way back then uh, was devastating for me in terms of i went away and i closely examined everything I had done in respect of that case, and felt um ha- have I done something that's brought about the the conviction of an innocent man, and if I felt that i would have um I would have walked away from the law because it, um, that is a horrendous burden to carry i then uh working on the appeals with the Queen's councils. Hampton and then uh, Graham Pankhurst, uh, they looked at that and they didn't see that as a, a ground with with carrying forward, which sort of you know, alleviated uh, my personal concerns a great deal. But also, um, when you look at how that happened, there were uh, far greater um, forces at work, if you like. You know, I. I Got to read, reread my cross-examination when I stepped back into uh, work with Peter in 2019. Uh, and I read it through, and there were cases, you know, instances of where I'm reading my cross-examination, and I winced a little bit. You know, I thought, well, oh, that could have been done better. Mm-hmm. But those are just blemishes, if this case is an apple, they are just blemishes on the skin. When you cut the apple open, it's the core that's rotten. And, uh, and that was the problem of the case. So, coming back to your question, um, I, uh, always, um, I always carried this case with me. And when Peter asked, would I come back in, uh, I had you know, a number of conversations with him concerning that. Uh, and the important thing for me was that uh, that rotten core be properly exposed. And I also felt confident enough in what I had done in 1993 that that wouldn't require me to step back and let another council take it forward. Hmm. So I, I think it's an unusual situation. Uh, I don't know of too many other council who have done a, a case like that and then 30 years later get to step back in and write it to the end. Uh, and so I felt very privileged that he um had confidence in me and
0: uh, asked me to come back in it's a it's a big emotional thing though too, isn't
1: it well yeah i'm feeling i'm feeling punch drunk at the moment to be honest uh, and a bit slow, and I think that's just the um release uh, of uh, getting that result
0: after decades
1: well yes um you know I've watched closely i i um I watched the 99 appeal, I watched the Commission of Inquiry, I watched the other applications coming through thinking, yes, maybe this time, yes, maybe this time, and each time being disappointed. So I came out of the Supreme Court two-week hearing thinking, well, from what I've seen in the past and what I've been involved in in the past, mm-hmm. there has been a fair hearing here for Peter, and I don't feel that he always had that in the past. Uh but I still didn't want to say uh, it's a done deal. So, um, nine o'clock on Friday morning when we got the, uh, the uh, result was um, massive,
0: really massive. My last question to you, um, Rob, is do you think there was ever any sexual abuse at that crash while Peter Ellis worked there? No. That was lawyer Rob Harrison talking about the three-decade-long battle to exonerate Peter Ellis, who was wrongfully convicted of child abuse in New Zealand in 1993. Now, on my website, you'll find plenty of interviews, reviews, and lots of my opinion. I cover the arts and entertainment industry, as well as the LGBTQ communities. All of that on andrewwhiteside.com. While there, you can sign up for my regular newsletters, and if you want to support my journalism, you can do so by buying me a coffee. Links to that are on the website. I am Andrew Whiteside. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you soon.